Okay, so welcome everyone. <laughs> uh, this is uh, our next episode of our uh, long-standing uh, weekly webinars for the Plant Genomics Fridays. Uh, I'm Jennifer Clark. I'm a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I'm hosting these uh, webinars on behalf of the uh, of the NSF Big Data Hub and uh, our projects in digital agriculture. So I'd like to introduce uh, Yayin Shi. Uh, Yayin is a assistant professor in the Department of Biological Systems Engineering at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And uh, she has expertise in uh, precision agriculture and the use of uh, UAVs and drones in agriculture. So uh, Yayin is going to speak to us today about challenges and opportunities in applying low altitude aerial imagery to plant Phenotyping. So, welcome to Yayin. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So, good morning, everyone. So, um, so today I'm going to talk about something about the low altitude aerial imagery and its application in phenotyping. Um, so, before I started, I just would like to reiterate the plant uh, phenotyping Friday series. Here at UNL and Iowa State, um, this is the web page, and then I'm the second of the last speaker this semester, and there are already uh, um, quite a few excellent talks earlier this semester. And if you did not have a, have a chance to to attend them, and then all of them are available as as the reports on this website. Okay, so, so in most of the previous talks, we've already had a very good cover uh, and understanding about how phenomics uh, uh, is. So I just want to uh, very briefly reiterate here. And then, uh, so the phenol um, is a set of physical and, bio and biochemical traits. Um, and then we all know the phenomes are the results of the interaction of the of the genome and the environment. Um, so that's the reason why. Um, so besides all those phenotyping work we did in the lab, we also want to uh, move them to the field environments uh, to look at their uh, their true results uh, with the interaction. Of the, of the environment. So the phenotyping is the measurement of the, of the phenols. So, um, so the phenotyping including um, two parts. And the, the, the first part is the, is the sensing part or the data measurement and the data gener generation part. And after that, we're going to do the data data processing. And then uh, combining with the genome sequencing data, we're going to input all those to the bioinformatics models and then do the statistic analysis and then do the machine learning. Um, and then for the phenotyping, uh, it, includes in the, it includes the lab-based phenotyping and also includes the field-based phenotyping. So the uh, so lab-based phenotyping is usually used as the first 
draining. Um, and then the phase phenotyping, as we just mentioned, are more used to look at some of the traits which are uh, hard to uh, to be seen in the in the lab, such as oxidative yield or uh, or the tolerances to water stress or to the nitrogen stress. Yeah, so uh, those are the um, two key um, components in the phenol in the phenotyping uh, or So the field-based phenotyping, um, I think it includes like three major parts. Uh, one part is the handheld uh, contact or the or the proximal sensing. Um, so the advantage of this handheld contact and um, proximal sensing is that it can get very detailed information and then see uh, as the as images showing here, like we could do the leaf level measurements uh, to measure the call field or like the hyperspectral uh, uh, sensing um, information. But then the, uh, the, the disadvantage of, of it is um, it's very slow. And then usually we could only select like a, uh, a few leaves uh, in one of the plots uh, or we could only sample some of the plots. Uh, so the scales or the or the or the or the throughput of this uh, handheld uh, phenotyping is is limited, and then we also have the ground-based uh, phenotyping system. So here I'm showing a picture I borrowed from from um, from before. Um, so this is his uh, ground-based um, phenotyping system. So uh, it it, it will have a much uh, faster uh, speed than the manual measurement, and it also will have much larger uh, throughput there. And also, there's uh, a lot of more sensors and equipments can be carried can be carried on such a system. Uh, so it will have, like, say, uh, higher throughput. Um, and then another component would be the aerial-based uh, sensing system or the, or the platforms. So the aerial-based platform, uh, it obviously, it will have much uh, larger coverage and then we will have much uh, faster speed. Um, and then it won't be limited by like say the soil condition to enter the field or it's sometimes also like you can do it multiple times along the growth season. So uh, higher, uh, higher spatial, uh, higher temporal resolution. However, it will have a lower spatial resolution. And then if you uh, fly higher, then you will see uh, less, less details on the ground. And also uh, those error platforms, while it's moving, um, then it won't. It will have a lot of uh, other uh, issues uh, 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 comes with it. Say the motion blur, and then uh, the signal. The signal strength will be less than the more than the more proximal sensing. Um, and then there's another 
uh, platform kind of in between the uh, ground-based and the arrow-based platform. Um, so at, at UNL, we have a spider camp facility. And this is one of the most innovative and then the um, um, most uh, um, uh, like the first uh, the first thing um, we do in this phenol uh, in this phenotyping work. So the so the spider cam it has the uh, it puts all those sensor platform on the wires and then the wires is fixed by the post. So the camera can move along the field. So it's kind of like a um, like a wireless bus. Um, so yeah, so it will have the advantage um, for uh, like the like the stability and then see uh, the more detailed stuff on the ground. But it's also it has much uh, more throughput than the ground based uh, system. So of uh, those uh, ground based uh, and aerial based platforms are we call them hyperloop um, phenotyping platforms. And then in this present presentation, I'm going to focus on the aerial-based platform. So we talked about phenol phenotyping, but then coming back from the aerial imagery part, aerial imagery has been used in agriculture for decades or a long time. And then there are three major um, platforms so far: the satellite, then the airplane, and then the drone. Or Formerly, uh, um, its, its former name should be UAS or UAV, like unmanned aircraft system or unmanned aerial vehicles. So, as you could see on the picture on the screen, and the satellites are just way high um, in the space. So, uh, it will have like a much larger cover on the Earth, and then more reliable. Um, more more reliable uh, coverage there, but then the spatial and then the temporal uh, resolution is going to be low. And then the airplane and the drones are are just like way lower than the satellites. And then the airplane are usually operate at around three three thousand feet high. Uh, and then the drones are usually uh, by FAA rules like you cannot fly higher than 400 feet. Um, so yeah, that's let's just try to give you a like feeling about their about their positions um, in the space or on the earth. So I always like to show this picture. I think it's very interesting. It shows the history of drones. And uh, I did not know that the first drone is actually about two centuries ago. And it's uh, Austria, um, a balloon used to deliver the bomb uh, in the like for the military use. So that one was considered as the first drone. And then it's actually the RC, the RC planes, uh, which the the radio controlled uh, uh, planes are actually started about a century ago. And then we all remember when we were small, we were playing those RC, RC like those RC cars, uh, RC planes. So, so the RC drones are actually 
um, being for quite a quite a while. But then the real revolution happens when uh, there's a um, like higher capacity batteries for the lithium batteries and the miniatures of the electronic parts and sensors. So those are the real game 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 changer there. So for the different uh, drone or the UAV platforms, first we know there's a fixed wing. So the fixed wing looks like very similar, uh, just like a miniature version of the passenger plane we, we usually take. And then there are the rotor wing, uh, uh, which is more looks like, uh, like say it has the it has the multiple rotors uh, and then it doesn't look like a conventional airplane. Uh, and then there are some hybrid ones, which looks like the conventional fixed wing drone, but then they will have the multiple rotors on top or, or their propellers are going to change the directions while they are already uh, lifted in a certain altitude. So, and then they're going to take off and landing as the fixed wing, as, as the rotor wings, but then they're going to fly as a fixed wing. So those are the hybrid ones. Um, so the good thing about the fixed wing are they actually, they're very efficient in powers. So as long as they can keep a certain flying speed, then the design of the wings will generate a certain uplifting force. So they could even like say shut down the engine and then they could still do the gliding. So uh, so fixed wings are usually uh, nowadays being used in uh, scouting like large area. Like a, a lot of the case will be more like production app, uh, application. Well, the, but then the fixed wing uh, in another, in a, in another hand is like say it has to keep like a certain forwarding speed, so uh, it doesn't have like a hovering uh, capability there, um, and also it just cannot fly really really low uh, altitude. But then the rover wing, uh, it will not be that efficient uh, in terms of the power uh, usability. Uh, it has, well, so the traditional uh, helicopter will be a single rotor, uh, rotor wing uh, uh, airplane. And then the, uh, currently, like say most of the drones are the multi-rotor uh, uh, multi plane. And then they will have, like say, they will consume the battery a lot. Um, but then in, in another case, they will have the hovering capability and then, and then the multiple rotor can really keep it flying very stable, and also very low. So if we if we want them flying lower, then then they could be flying very low. So, uh, and then the hybrid hybrid ones I just talked a little bit about. So it's uh, still flying as a fixed wing, but then it will uh, kind of eliminate all those hassles, like say the. Uh, the fixed wing drones will have during the uh, during the takeoff and the landing um, landing process. So we just 
cannot avoid talking about FAA rules or talking about the drones. Um, all the um, drones which has a weight greater than 0.55 pounds are required to register uh, at FAA. So this is also including your hobby drones. And uh, since we're doing the research for the university, and then this is also be considered as a commercial use of drones. So we, we have to pass the part 107 exam, um, which is called remote pilot certificate. And then uh, this one, uh, and even even you pass that exam, you still there are still something you need to bear in mind. First, I say the drone you operated could not be uh, greater uh, or equal than 55 pounds, and then uh, you have to fly lower than 400 feet above the ground level, and then uh, the drone has to be within line of sight. So like say, at least it needs to be a little dot in your, in your view, yeah. And then no, no night, night time. Like I know, especially for some of the research application, like say for the thermal sensing or yeah, then for like say the chlorophyll, um, people may want to have night flight, but then no, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not allowed by the part 107. Um, if you want a more flexible um, flight, like say if you want to fly higher, higher than 400 feet, or if you, uh, like say if your field location is, like say close to an airport, uh, so in those more controlled areas, then you need to get a code, a certificate of authorization, which is um, uh, much more difficult than part 107. And then, um, and then, so before you fly, you need to check, like say, where you're, you're going to fly, if it's, if it's legal or not. So there's an FAA app called E4 You Fly. So just need to check with that. Uh, and then uh, one vote in, in, in our department has been um, doing with um, this uh, FAA uh, type of training for a long time and it's very experienced. So uh, uh, I would say like most of your questions regarding to the FAA rules, like he will be the right person to, uh, to ask. So, so we talked about the, the drones, the platform, and then we just need to briefly uh, talk about the sensors on the drones. Uh, so I'm going to talk with them with the availability or the cost uh, on the markets. Um, so as you know, like say there are the true color RGB cameras and that's the most of the, that's the cameras come with most of the drones, like the stock cameras there. And then they basically just uh, ask the cameras we use, uh, like say on the cell phone or on the proxy camera or the DSLR camera. So they simulate uh, the what human eyes see. So it will be more, we could use it for more for, for structural or shape or, or the color type of uh, information. And then they, those are excellent for the general field scouting. 
And then uh, for research or more and more application in the production app, uh, we know there are multi-spectral cameras. So the multi-spectral camera usually has like three to six uh, bands. Uh, we, cut, we, cut them the, we cut them the spectral band. Um, so, uh, and then they usually has the near infrared band. Um, so they are basically detecting the reflectance in each of those um, spectral bands uh, from the canopy. Um, so uh, the near infrared band or some other bands will be very sensitive to plant health or the stress level, uh, such as like say the near infrared and then the red band are, are conventionally they've been used for the nitrogen stress uh, sensing. And then, and then in the recent years, uh, the thermal cameras have been made smaller and smaller. So uh, there are uh, like thermal cameras available for the drone platform. Um, so the thermal camera is basically detecting the thermal radiation in uh, about seven to 14 micrometer range. And then thinking it as simple as like the higher temperature, then the, the stronger the thermal radiation will be. Um, so thermal cameras are usually being used to, to detect like water stress or in production lab, a lot of the irrigation uh, management. And then there are hyperspectral cameras or hyperspectral, uh, like say push boom sensors. And then uh, those are, a lot of them are, are become more and more interest by the research world, especially by the phenotyping uh, world. And then comparing with the uh, multi-spectral cameras, uh, the hyperspectral sensor will have hundreds of bands, but with narrower bandwidth. So it really can help, can give us the chance to, to pinpoint like where are those feature spectral bands for a specific problem. So they have been used for like very targeted, uh, uh, very targeted for stress and then the chemical content uh, sensing. And also the LiDAR sensor, uh, they might not have like say uh, too much applications on the, uh, too many applications on the phenotyping right now, um, but they, as the technology developed, they will become like smaller and smaller and then the, all the control uh, system and then the, uh, uh, will will become more and more easier. So I would still think they will have a um, good opportunity in our phenol, in our phenol, uh, phenotyping work. So the LiDAR sensor are, is basically uh, uh, based on the time of flight principle. So it basically measure, measure the distance from the sensor to the object. And while you are rotating the light source, you're actually uh, profile a like a 3D, uh, 3D view. So it measures the structure or the shape, and then uh, it's usually being used um, like outside of phenotyping, but then it's mainly used for the terror mapping. Um, but there are uh, people 
uh, like thinking to introduce LiDAR sensor to a phenotyping to measure the chemical structure. So, uh, so now we're coming to the challenges since we just talked about the platform and the sensors. So the first challenges we're going to have in this uh, drone uh, phenotyping will be system integration and then the control. Uh, so the most important thing is to make it safe. So either safe for human and also safe for the system. Since uh, um, it's not uncommon to have the crash of the drum system and then kind of like the handheld sensor or the ground-based system will have some malfunctioning. So the drone system will also have malfunctioning moments, but then that means like it's crashed. So like say the system will, yeah. So, so considering about financial cost, like say you have the drones or you have a really expensive sensors there. So, and also the time you, uh, it will take to fix the system. Like you need to probably set the, like either get a new drone or set the, send the sensor back to the, back to the company to fix. So it's going to like a, be a, like a large cost. So, uh, so, so uh, there are um, a lot of, like, especially for some of the sensors, the system integration can be very challenging. And so because of this, there are more and more uh, uh, third party like, service providers uh, provide the uh, system integration, right? They can sell the integrated system to you. So that might be, that might not be a bad choice. Um, and then, but uh, even if you got a, a integrated system, then while you're operating and uh, once like ever, ever once there is a problem happen, you need to, to, um, to debug the system. So you still require, uh, it still require like uh, experience and expertise in system integration. Uh, so yeah, I just like to mention that. And especially if you're in remote field, like you drive an hour or two to a field and then you have this uh, problem, then uh, that will mean you have to debug the problem in the field uh, with limited tools. Uh, and also it could be very hot in the summertime. Because that's, <laughs> yeah, because most of the, most of the season for the phenotyping uh, work. So it's going to be easy to get a drone to fly and get some images or data, but then it's going to be hard to get good images as, as, as desired. So my uh, limited experience helped me start from something simple and then to gain experience. So uh, after I think uh, I started at UNL in uh, uh, at the beginning of this year, I purchased like a, a DJI Matrice, this multi-rotary drone, and then I got two cameras there. I got a RGB camera, and I got the five-band multi-spectral camera. So and then 
this uh, this is a like a rel relatively uh, basic system setup. I would say the I don't know I don't know what's happening. Or it's just, <laughs> or it's just showing that way. <laughs> so that may be like a Yeah, well, just thinking it like flying, like turn 90 degrees. So, yeah, but then what I what I want to what I would like to show here is this platform can actually fly like very stable, and then you can see it's yeah, it's a little bit harder to tell from here, but it was actually showing like a turn, like you make a lap and then make a turn and coming back. So, and also the landing part, and you could imagine like 90 degrees uh, turn, <laughs> rotation there, and then the landing is also very smooth. So, yeah, so just want to uh, give you like not uh, just be afraid of that. So um, things could be, could be well. So here I'm putting a flow chart after we collect the data and then uh, what shall we do? So this flow chart shows uh, the steps from planning the mission and then conduct the flights. And then after that, stitch the images to a map. And then, uh, so after that will be the processing part. So uh, one step is to delineate the box. So phenotyping study usually will have, like say, hundreds of, uh, of plots. So they all need to be delineated. Uh, and then the future uh, processing will be based on each of those plots. And then we could do some parameter extraction. So for example, will be the vegetation index. Um, and finally, uh, to evaluate the performance of the system. We need to uh, compare with the rough truth measurement. So yeah, but in the future, what we hope is we could have, like, say, accurate enough model. So we don't need to take uh, that many rough truth uh, uh, measurements anymore. So here I am showing a few examples uh, that. I like uh, my group collected uh, so far uh, since I've been uh, working at UNL. So this is the weak study field like Dr. Ben Enziger's uh, plot. And then this is uh, like about a like over 10 uh, acre uh, field. And then uh, so the spatial resolution for this study within it was about like one to two inches. Uh, so every pixel is about one to two inches. Um, and then this this uh, flights are are kind of like very uh, few flights like I initially does um, after I got the system work. So some things like things may not be perfect here at that moment. And also we, we kind of miss the optimal uh, week season. So at that time, like the end of June, like the leaves are uh, were already like drying down. 
So we saw we could see a lot of like yellow ink blocks there or darker green. Um, and then we also could see because like the, the initial slide, there are some distortion there of the mosaic image. Uh, but I was pretty happy about the like say uh, the system like say the whole system would work. It could actually give us like say uh, like a big mosaic of the whole field. And if we zoom in, we could actually see like um, some of the looks like more fuzzy kind of looking are actually those plots with a lot of logic there. So when I was working that field, there was a lot of logic plots. So uh, that's one thing I think we could um, we could um, extract um, from from the images um, in the future. And then this is the blue streak um, reading plots from Dr. Pine. And then um, so the images also were taken very late in the season. That's also like uh, like one of like say my very uh, few like the first very uh, few flights uh, there. So but then um, the image quality was good. And then we could actually see like the variations in between the variety. And then this, uh, some of the varieties will have a better uh, survival uh, through the blue streak. Uh, but then some of them we could see are like say, blue um, like a canopy and then blue uh, stand. Um, so uh, yeah, so we hope to continue this study for this coming season. And then this is the homework field <laughs> that uh, James and Austin and Yifeng was all also involved. And then this is the, I'm comparing probably with most of the research publications so far for the phenotyping. This is the relatively larger plot and then it's about four acre and then it's unique. Uh, so the study here is uh, to see the water stress uh, tolerance. So there are uh, about 250 varieties and three roughly replications. So in total, what you're looking at here are about 750 plots. And then we imaged uh, this field uh, uh, Quite a few times along the growth season. So some of them, especially the earlier one, uh, may not be very good. So, uh, but then we had at least uh, useful data um, about every month. Um, so um, we mainly just did the uh, just did the spectral sensing and then the and then the structure uh, sensing, which we hope to come up with the plant cut measurement. Um, so this is, I'm just putting one of the mosaics, like the RGB mosaics there, and then the, uh, this, uh, this pseudo color uh, mask here showing the plant height. And then uh, like say the redder, uh, I believe it's the higher uh, of the plant. So, uh, Sorry that I did not put the scale there, um, but then we could see the variations um, uh, in between the in between uh, the variety. And also, this is not a uh, 
corrupted that type. It's more like a surface model. So as we know, like in the north part, which is the upper part of the field, are probably like lower. And then the south part probably will be higher a little bit. So but then we're going to uh, uh, correct this uh, surface measurement, this surface model with the uh, um, aggregation model, and then we're going to get the depth height. And then, uh, so a couple of like zooming uh, images about the, about the uh, data collected along the season. So this is uh, pretty like early in the season. It's probably like say V5, v I would say that stage. Uh, so uh, at here, we could probably see like the stand count. Uh, we could get the stand count in full deformation. Like some of the area will have full, uh, like better stand count. Some will have uh, like say, uh, less uh, stand count. And then uh, this is um, probably after, right after the canopy closed. Um, and, then, and then this one was don't know if you could see that clearly on the screen, but then this one is actually during the flowering stage. So we could we could um, see the tassels there. But then uh, challenges would be this, like say this tassel thing will be kind of blurred after the mosaicing process. So this is something we need to um, uh, further working out in the future. So. So, and again, this is the um, um, NDRE uh, map um, coming uh, calculated from the biofence multi-spectral multi image, and then we could see the variations there. And then, so I've kind of talked about this a little bit, but then there are some unique issues for the low altitude UED imagery than the conventional remote sensing. Like, one is like they we like each flight will end up with hundreds or thousands of images like small uh image footprints and then they all need to be mosaic to a big map and then so uh the mosaicing algorithm uh um, the performance will all depend on like say the features in those images so uh sometimes like they late in the season when there are lack of features in the images, in between the images, um, and also uh, the wind moves the canopy during the data uh, acquisition. So all these are kind of uh, making all those difficulties for the mosaicing. And also uh, uh, the camera settings is another thing we need to um, uh, consider about, like say the motion blur. Uh, so, the, so the drone platform, uh, will be moving and also the wind is going to move the canopy. So, uh, yeah, how to set up the camera in order to minimize the motion blur uh, will be something to consider. And then uh, how to radiometrically uh, calibrate uh, images from image uh, is another problem. Like as the technology developments, there are uh, better and better uh, solutions there. For example, like the downbowing sensor uh, will help uh, to solve part of it. So, and then uh, 
we just can't avoid talking about the big data uh, problem here. So I still use that cornfield as an example. So a multi-spectral camera, high bands, will generate about 23 gigabytes of light. And then uh, another true color camera uh, will generate about 7.6 gigabytes. And then so that will be if we're thinking about like every conducting of lights every other week um, in the three months in the season, the, this will be uh, about 270 gigabytes raw data of that single field and just with two basic sensors here. So yeah, so how to how to deal with all those data, uh, first like how to process them is a lot of like computational power uh, and then how to manage them, how to store and then sharing them will be a problem. And also uh, if we're thinking about more like say advanced sensors like um, uh, LiDAR or like say the point cloud uh, gen generated uh, from the structure sensor and also the hyperspectral sensor, there's going to be even more, uh, even larger size of big data there. And also uh, there could be um, some other information extracted from the image uh, that we haven't we haven't found yet. So those will also be some more data uh, gener generated. So um, and that's just from one platform from the air platform. So and then another example here is a sorting field. I've been working with with Dr. Sackman uh, here. Um, so this is a uh, like a 1.5 acre. Uh, plot and then it's going, it's the nitrogen nitrogen stress trial and then um, in total about 384 plots. Um, so we did it about uh, like one centimeter spatial resolution. So uh, so we we tune the system again and again and finally the the images looks uh, well and then um, zooming. Uh, look, we could see um, better about the variations in between the variety. And then some of the, like, say, more blurry area uh, or the fuzzy area, we would like to investigate more in the future. Like, if it's, like, say, the canopy is was, like, uh, different than the others, or it was because of the wind. Um, so, and then this is just like an NDRE map, which is uh, another index similar to an EVI. And then we could further see some variations there. And then flat height. So yeah, we were pretty happy about this flat height uh, map. And then it's uh, we could we could kind of see those see those plots there. And then also like the tracks from the irrigation system, and then the like say the stream, yeah, upper in that image. So, yeah. So overall, like we could um, have the structure uh, for the physical information as well as the spectral, the, uh, and hopefully they could be correlated with the biochemical uh, traits 
um, from the pins, uh, for the pins from the aerial imagery. And then some, just like very quick here, this is some other work like when I was doing my postdoc at uh, Texas A&M. So uh, the wheat, which we did like say the NDVI and then the leaf area index and then the rock cover uh, and also uh, the sorghum, uh, the sorghum height uh, and also uh, like say the along the season measurements to monitoring the change of the height and then the change of the NDVI and then the core also like say in Texas um, core height is a, a major choice there so um, uh, analysis in between the ground truth and the measured height this was the yeah this all these was the, like said the very uh, first preliminary data so and then I uh, I believe they got like much, much better results right now. And then uh, for soil, like the interaction of soil and then the pins. So, uh, so the soil EC zone is kind of correlated uh, with the NDVI. So, yeah. So, and then the soil type, um, um, and then it's, it's correlation with the yield and then with the NDVI. So, yeah, so now we can got the data and then what next? So next we're going to combine with like say this uh, trace or all those, all those parameters measured by the aerial platform combined with lots of other phenotypic data generated from lab, from greenhouse, from field menu and then the uh, ground-based measurements and then also very important combining with the with the conventional breeding or the or the genotypic data and then all those are going to be inputs to the bioinformatics model and then do further analysis so yeah so just um, quickly mention some other phenotyping facilities at UNL uh, you like there are already like excellent talks earlier, but just want to give a, give a look here. So uh, at very right side are, are actually the aerial imagery we did for the spider pen area. So yeah, and then uh, we have the ground based system, phone in DSD, and then art in, uh, in Calmet, and also great uh, a greenhouse facility, which uh, quite a few scientists and engineers are involved. So the future work for the aerial imagery, I would say research like um, optimizing the flight parameters and sensor parameters for like more specifically for the different uh, crops and applications. So a lot of work needs to be done there. Uh, also improve the image processing uh, those two are kind of un endless work. There's always going to be improvements there. And then the machine learning uh, algorithm to extract more useful information from the data we collected uh, and also the big data uh, issue. And then how can we deal with, like, say, computational uh, um, the bottleneck? And then how to manage the data and how to share the data. 
So with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. And then if you have any questions, I would be happy to answer them. And um, I think you could also, we have a little bit more time, mm -hmm. you could also type them in on the question uh, tab of the Zoom link. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just also would like to mention there are, like say at the upper right side are uh, two of my current uh, master students, uh, Jackie Lee and then Aaron, and then they are uh, excellent students um, uh, learning very quickly. And then on the um, very left side are two undergraduate students, Michael and then Peyton. They've been helped a lot, especially earlier in the season for field work. And all the others are we took in the field trials. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Uh, questions? I'm sorry, I'm not this kind of field. But uh, I, 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 want, I want to ask one question is what's the Cambridge range uh, available for the drawing work? And you mentioned a lot about the high temperature, about the low temperature. About the law conditions, is it more degree or sixty degree or below that? It's hard to get it ready to find high quality uh, interns or. Oh, oh well, I would say like say theoretically you can conduct the um, the drone flight whenever like say the the propeller can can rotate right and then but then one of the limiting factors is. Uh, as it's getting colder, the, the battery life is much shorter. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. Like I actually, Nebraska is the, like the so far the coldest area ever been. But when I was in Texas, like even in Texas winter, um, the, like they say the battery's life will be lower. So that's also something we need to consider. Yeah. And then, from the let's say the plant's point of view, like usually we probably want to keep them consistent. Or yeah, because if you want to have like comparable data, so yeah. So probably like say the similar environments like temperatures and then yeah, uh, illumination will be will be better for the Um, there's a question in the from the chat. Um, mm -hmm. What's the well two first? Okay, so first question is what is the resolution mm -hmm. of the data that you extract from the images? Is it like at plot level or is it at plant level? Like mm -hmm. can you can you actually phenotype individual plants? Yeah. Or are you are you limited to like a certain area, a certain footprint? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a very good question. So. Uh, actually, from the image we could see, or uh, we can actually um, see like almost like in the leaf level. But then I would say, I'd say that would be reliable. I would say usually, currently we still do like say at the plot level. We're basically just like averaging them, and then, or like say yeah, averaging is a more is a more like a more general term. But then we still get like say. Um, 
let's say, based on the plot, we use a plot as the, as the unit. Um, since most of the phenotyping uh, uh, field are designed, like the experiments were designed based on the plot, like either like two-row plots or four-row, six-row plots. So, and sometimes we even um, prefer to have like say the average in, in the plot because we want to like kind of like eliminate the, let's say, we want to um, consider like the, all the same variety in the plot. But then, but then I say we have the potential to do like say class level or even like or even like leaf level, but the leaf level, I would say it's going to be very reliable now. So, yeah. so that's that's also kind of thing like say, uh, the stereo measured phenotypic data really needs to be combined with the, the other the other methods, like say ground-based or like say, even like manually measured, yeah. So. Okay, and um, in addition to uh, like plant height, mm -hmm. uh, what other kind of plant traits can you extract from the images mm -hmm. themselves? Like, can you extract uh, plant width or, mm -hmm. or uh, like, can you get some kind of proxy biomass? Or, mm -hmm. you know, what, what exactly, what traits do you, do you, have mm -hmm. you seen you can extract from the mm -hmm. images? Yeah, so um, we, Usually, like say something simple to do will be will be the grub cover, and then the height. Of course, we will have the height output already from afternoon baking. So we have height, and then we'll have a grub cover, and then something else will be. So we should we should put it in this way. Like say, as long as our human eyes can see some variations from those mosaic images, there are potentials like for us to use like say the image processing or the machine learning um, techniques to extract those information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so something for example, like when I was talking about like say the wheat, that would be like say the lodging. Mm -hmm. So that's basically like say the canopy, canopy structure. And also like say uh, for the for disease, like say some of the disease will make the canopy like like spread uh -huh. rather than like say like stand up. Mm -hmm. So all those things we just need to um, like find out the right like image processing and uh, like algorithm to to extract the yeah. And uh, and then there's also something like I was not included there, but also like say um, was Rick and you were thinking about um, if we could make use of those point clouds to extract the canopy, the canopy structure. So that's, yeah, also, and also And then um, I had a separate question, which was, uh, once you collect the images, then sort of what, what have you found is the best way to like manage and share, you know, that amount of data, mm -hmm. you know, because I've had people ask me, okay, are there a standard kind of places where you put this data? Is there, are there ways that people usually use to share it um, mm -hmm. besides just, you know, mailing a, a hard drive to somebody? Are there ways that people in the field use, you know, typically use yeah. to 
for data management mm -hmm. sharing. Yeah. So um, first, like uh, there are some. So so first, like the images or the mosaics. Some of them are going to be too big to view just in the regular image viewer. Um, so you need some uh, like uh, either like remote sensing or special image viewer software to, to view them. And also, uh, so far we actually like say, we just based on like say using like hard drive mm -hmm. to do that. But then if we're really going to reach that stage to share the data then definitely have a like server or another another um, uh, like option is there are some commercial uh, uh, like say the um, software or like say the sensor companies they are really they are also very interested in this area so there are some commercial uh, software uh, that you could pay and then but you could kind of like view like say the time series time series map. So, but then again, I'd say for research, that's that's more for production ads. But then for research, people sometimes may not want to disclose their their discoveries. So I would say just like say uh, uh, internal like server will be will be good. So that's also something like uh, um, we we think about it like a lot. Um, like when I was talking about that the other day about how to manage and share the data and then maybe like the university like say the computing center could right. help so but that's a really good really question great all right thank you very much